Hello, people. I'm sure you've heard of the term bigger, stronger, faster. In fact, in 2008, there was a documentary made by Chris Bell with that exact name. And there is a cookie-cutter-type workout program called Bigger, Faster, Stronger that, I don't know, 90% of high school football coaches in the country give to their athletes. And who wouldn't want their athletes to be bigger, faster, and stronger? I know I would. But I'm going to tell you something that you're probably not going to believe. You can't become all three. You can either get bigger and stronger or stronger and faster. But there's no way at the same time you're going to get both bigger and faster. Now look, I'm speaking uh, in absolute certainties right now. And I'm sure there's exceptions to every rule. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to speak in certainties. So for the purposes of this podcast, uh, yeah, we're going to ignore the exceptions or the freak athlete or the genetically gifted person. And we're going to say that most of the time, it is going to be really hard to get bigger and faster at the same exact time. Now, for you to even come on this journey with me at all, just a little bit, we're going to have to agree on a couple things. One, we're going to have to agree that speed is the primary goal. So if you're a bodybuilder or you train bodybuilders, throw that out right now. Just agree with me that if you're training an athlete, speed is the primary goal. If you're a bodybuilder, speed is not the primary goal. If you're a powerlifter, speed is not the primary goal. But if you train athletes, speed should be one of your primary goals. The second thing that we'd have to agree on is that at least in advanced trainings world, our tough man and most challenges are based on timed events. So the faster you do them, the more often you're going to win. And the third thing we have to agree on is that if you have two guys of the same size, strength, agility, ability, there's these two athletes, if they're competing, the one who's faster is almost always going to win out. So if we're on the same page about that, we can proceed. Even if we're not on the same page about that, nod your head and pretend like you somewhat agree with me so you can go on this journey that we're going to have. And then at the end of this journey, you can make a decision if you agree or disagree and how it's going to impact the way that you train. Now, the reason we're doing this is we've had a lot of conversations inside of our group. The program's too soft. I hate feeding cats. Guys are constantly talking about the workouts that they're doing, and they're, they've been spitting in the face of the secrets of strength. Uh, they've been spitting in the face of the way that we train. And now here we go along with uh, this new way that I'm going to talk about from the underground secrets to faster running that is even further off than what I was doing with the secrets of strength. So we have guys talking about they need more endurance, they need to train longer to get themselves in better condition or to get faster for a shorter condition test. And then we have other guys saying that what we're doing doesn't, uh, doesn't breed enough toughness. So let's get into it. We need to have this conversation. This is a must, uh, must listen. This is a must do sit down with the advanced training crew. So again, why this podcast? Well, it's based on this book called The Underground Secrets to Faster Running by a guy named Barry Ross. I first heard about Barry Ross when I read... Uh, the four-hour body from Tim Ferriss a few years ago. Many years ago. I don't know. It might have been like 10 years ago. I don't know. My timing's off. But I heard about Barry Ross, and I kind of just left it there. I knew what I heard about in the book, but I didn't go any further with it. Then it comes up again at a track football consortium when the great and powerful Tony Holler is speaking. Then I hear it again about Christian McCaffrey's training methods. Uh, this is pre-injury Christian McCaffrey. But it's like, wow, I got to get my hands on this book. So I read the book. And again, it takes us another step further than our holy grail of strength that we have been working on, or at least that I have been working on, for the last few years. What the basic premise is, it talks about how do you work out in a gym to make you, or help make you, faster on a field. And for our world, what we're going to talk about today, how we're going to work out in the gym to get faster 
on a football field. So let's get back to this first the statement we had. Why can't you get bigger and faster at the same time? Well, in the world of speed, mass is the enemy. Yeah, you need to add more strength. I've said this forever. You look at sprinters. Those guys are all jacked up. You got to be strong to be fast. Strength is a necessity. But adding mass is completely and totally devastating. Now, I want you to remember this word. In fact, it's going to be impossible for you to forget it. Uh, this, sorry, this phrase. It's going to be called mass-specific force. I might say it a thousand times. In fact, let's play a game. Every time I say it during this, uh, you should take a one shot of your BioChest uh, organic protein shake. All right, so here we go again. Mass-specific force. So the predominant factor in running faster is your ability to generate and transmit muscular force to the ground. Again, we're going to focus on mass-specific force. You say, look, man, that, that definition sounds ridiculous. From what I know, if I did any research, speed is just stride length, how long my strides are, and stride, stride rate, right? What, what is this ridiculous uh, mass-specific force? Well, mass-specific force actually relates to stride length and stride, stride rate, all right? The greater your mass-specific force, that's that force you're putting into the ground, the greater your stride length and stride rate are going to be. Now, let's put this into uh, simplistic terms. Imagine you're throwing a rubber ball into the ground. The harder you throw that ball and the faster you throw that ball, the farther it's going to bounce back up, right? So the, the ball bouncing faster can be the stride rate, and the ball bouncing further is going to be a stride length. And imagine if you had two different balls. One was a medicine ball and one was a light racket ball. Which one is going to bounce up off the ground faster and bounce up off the ground further? And this is what we're talking about when we get to mass-specific force. So mass-specific force is the amount of force you can deliver to the ground in relation to your body weight. That's why mass or your body weight is so important. The other part of this is good old gravity, right? So the greater your mass, the greater the gra gravitational pull. And you may think, well, look, when I'm running, I'm just going left and right. I have this horizontal force. Uh, that's not true. There is a horizontal force, but when you're at constant speed, that's only one-tenth of the force that's being applied vertically, which means up and down. So let's get back to uh, stride length and stride rate, because it is pretty important. There's two major factors that, import, in, sorry, that impact your stride rate. Remember, think about the ball. That's how fast that thing is uh, bouncing off the ground. If you're thinking about your foot, that's how fast your legs are moving. All right? So the predominant factor... In increasing stride rate is ground contact time. That's how long your foot is actually on the ground. The greater your mass-specific force, take your protein shot right now, I'll give you a second. Good. The greater that is, the shorter the ground contact time. Go back to that ball analogy. So the more force I'm putting into the ground, the mass-specific force, the shorter the ground contact time. And the shorter the ground contact time, the faster your stride rates become. That's it. So when you're running, you really shouldn't think about, how fast can I move my legs? It should be, how much force can I put into the ground? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The second thing is swing time. So if you think about swing time, that's the time between when your same foot hits the ground. So if I go left foot, right foot, left foot, the time between both my left feet, sorry, the time between both of my foot strikes from my left foot, that would be my swing time. But this has little consequence when compared to ground contact time, so we're only going to focus on ground contact time. Now, we're talking about speed. 
But remember the origins of this conversation. A lot of guys, they're getting ready for some form of the academy, or they're thinking about the tough man. And I prescribe them some sort of workout, and without fail, Coach Mahoney's soft, he doesn't get it. For example, if somebody says, look, I have to run a, a mile and a half to get into the FDNY. I need to do it in X amount of time. I got to do it in 12 minutes. I don't give them a prescription to run three miles and say, look, if you, get, if you could run three miles at that pace, then you can absolutely run a mile and a half in that pace. No, we go the other way. We go short. We'll do a quarter of a mile. We'll do a half a mile. We'll make them run faster for shorter periods of time in the hopes, and I shouldn't even say hopes, with the scientific thought that by able, being able to run fast, it'll carry over into their quote-unquote endurance work for a longer distance. But you'll see guys fail on, on any, let's say, endurance type of event, and people will always say, ah, we got to do longer distances. Ah, we got to do more reps. We got to make it worse. We have to make it worse in practice so the game is easier, right? You hear this over and over again. But it's not really the truth. The truth is that the reason people will mostly become tired it's not because of this lack of endurance. It's mostly because of this lack of strength. And the lack of strength can come from two different things. One, poor training. Or two, poor mechanics, which are robbing their strength. So strength is the, is the groundwork for everything. It's why we created the Holy Grail of strength. Because that is really the building block, at least in my mind, for everything else that you're going to do. It's going to make you better at everything else that you're going to do. And if you have more strength, you're going to have more endurance... Because you're going to run with greater economy. It's not going to take you as much effort to run because you're stronger. Now, you may say, man, well, why? how come guys who are powerlifters aren't the fastest guys in the world? Well, because they weigh so much, right? Let's go back to mass-specific force. The goal is, is to get as strong as possible without adding mass. That is the key. Okay, so let's get back to this conversation. You say, okay, okay, man, I'm buying it. So what do I do to run faster? All right? I'm buying it. I'm on the same page as your coach. You know, you're probably rolling your eyes. Whatever. What should I do to get to get faster? Well, the first thing is you should focus on developing a greater mass-specific force. And we're going to talk about how to do that. If you develop that greater mass-specific force, it's going to decrease your ground contact time. The longer your feet are on the ground, the slower you're going to run. And then the second thing you need to do is to develop a more rapid delivery system of mass-specific force. Now, these things are important. These two things. Because if you're doing any exercises that don't do those two things, you're doing the wrong stuff. So again, focus on developing greater mass-specific force, which is actually going to decrease your ground contact time. Then you have to develop a more rapid delivery system of mass-specific force. I'll take a break, take a shot of protein. Okay, you need to do that to overcome the decreased contact time. Because with less contact time, now you got to move, go faster and faster and faster. All right. So some would say, look, man, I didn't hear you say uh, running mechanics. You're talking about all this stuff. And maybe for some of you who just lift weights, this is like way too far into running. But it is important to understand how the way your weightlifting is going, it's going to correlate to both greater mass-specific force and a more rapid delivery of uh, system. But let's talk about running mechanics. So the first one is stride length. When I'm training guys to run, it's, it's tough. You tell guys to run faster, and you see them constantly either trying to reach out their front foot, foot too long to have an increased stride length, or uh, they try and like bound. like They just try and basically leap to get further strides. And that's really not the way it should be. So if we're talking about stride length, well, we've already said before that it's actually an effect of mass-specific force. So you really shouldn't focus on that. You should just focus on putting more force into the ground. 
And then if we talk specifically about overstriding, that's one of the worst thing you can do. It's actually a, a mechanical problem. So overstriding, if people don't know what that is, at least in my terms, is when you put your foot out way in front of your body, you're basically reaching with the front of your foot as opposed to putting your foot underneath your hips. Now we've been doing a warm-up for years. Uh, it's like our little forward bounce and a sideways bounce and a backwards bounce. But the entire time, the intent of that drill is to help you use your feet and have them hit directly underneath your, underneath your hips to prevent overstriding. That's why we do it. So we really want to have our feet hit the ground, apply force into the ground, the most force that we possibly can, and have us help us move forward. Again, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. All right? So if I'm overstriding, it's going to reduce my speed because all of my strength is not going to be applied to the ground. Because I'm not reaching out. It's not directly into the ground and pulling the ground behind me. So I want to, again, put this into some simplistic terms. Imagine I said uh, I want you to jump as high as possible. And you could do it with your feet, I don't know, eight inches apart. Boom, make you jump. Good. Now I want you to jump as high as possible with your feet as far as apart as possible. Which way do you think you're going to jump higher? All right, the reason you're going to jump higher with your feet eight to 12 inches apart as opposed to two feet apart is because when they're two feet apart, your legs are not directly under the mass of your body, right? It's the same thing when you run. So if my foot's way out in front of me, there's no way I'm going to get that force generated into the ground the same way as if my foot is directly under my, underneath my hip, all right? So now we've talked about running a little bit. Let's talk about, I don't know, you're probably asking yourself this question, well, why the hell does anything I do in the gym matter when it comes to speed? And again, we're going to save a the magic phrase, mass-specific force, all right? And the key word in that is mass, especially when we're talking about the gym. So for a bodybuilder, more mass is the goal. They need that mass. These guys are jacked up. They want to be jacked up, and I don't blame them. It looks pretty sick to be that jacked up. For an athlete, more mass is the enemy. Yes, there is a minimal threshold of mass that you need to have. So let's put that on the table right now. You can't go play a inside linebacker at Columbia University at 185 pounds, at least I couldn't, for an entire season and not get flung around like a, like a rag doll, right? There's got to be a minimum amount of mass. But once you hit that mass, that should be your optimal level and then add strength to that without adding more mass, all right? Because the more mass you add to your body, the more force you have to apply to the ground to maintain that same rate of speed. So if I was a uh, 200 and I ran a 5.640, that's not going to do anybody any good, even if it was all muscle, right? So the secret to speed is to gain strength without adding mass. Remember, mass-specific force. Okay, so we talked about muscle. We talked about mass. What we really need to talk about is that not all muscle growth is created equally. It's not the same, right? So from this point on, we're going to talk about muscle growth as something called hypertrophy. And there's two types of hypertrophy that we need to talk about. I actually wrote about this a long time ago in an article called Humbled at the Jersey Shore. I suggest you read it. Uh, just Google Humbled at the Jersey Shore. It'll probably come up like second or third at the list. And I think the first two are like have something to do with the actual show, The Jersey Shore. But this was inspired by the great Billy Blanco. He said he went to the Jersey Shore and he was humbled. He couldn't believe how jacked up these guys were. Like, we train all the time, coach. Why don't I look like them? And in that article, I talk very specifically about what I'm going to talk about now. The two different types of hyper hypertrophy. The first one is what bodybuilders focus on. And it's known as sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. 
All right. So sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, to keep it simple, when you see a guy with these big puffy muscles, bodybuilding muscles, that's sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. So they provide muscle growth by increasing the volume, keywords here, of the non-contractile muscle. All right. Non-contractile muscle cell fluid in the muscle called sarcoplasm. So it's non-contractile. People will call it non-functional muscle. You have it, it's, but it's not really doing you much good. All right? And this can represent 20% or more of the muscle size. And you, you hit this with higher reps and lighter weight, normally above the 12 rep range. Okay. The other kind of hypertrophy is called myofibrillar hypertrophy. And this is muscle growth via the increase in the number of, keyword, contractile proteins in the myofibril. So sarcoplasmic hypertrophy has non-contractile, sorry, it's tough for me to say, muscle cell fluid, and then myofibrillar hypertrophy has contractile. This is important because one is going to aid in strength and performance, and the other one is going to make you look good at the Jersey Shore. Again, if your only goal is to look good at the Jersey Shore, bear with me because we're really going to talk about how uh, athletes work and not how a bodybuilder works. But bodybuilders have figured it out. They figured out that time under tension is key. They figured out how to increase that sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Athletes, on the other hand, we need to focus on how to increase our myofibular hypertrophy. And you get this hypertrophy by lifting heavy weights in low amounts of sets and reps normally above 80% of your one rep max, okay? Because what contracts within your muscles are the myofibrils, okay? We're talking about myofibril hypertrophy. So we need that for performance. And if you expand the number of myofibrils in your muscle, all right, the more you do that, it's going to directly increase your muscular force production. And for us, we want to do this as often as possible. You're going to hear me say multiple times in this podcast, not um, in addition to uh, mass-specific force. Train as heavy as possible, as often as possible, as fresh as possible. I'll say it again. Train as heavy as possible, as often as possible, as fresh as possible. All right, let's talk about strength. We've talked about mass. We've talked about hypertrophy. We alluded to a little bit that strength was a necessity for speed, but we really didn't get into like where the strength comes from. So how, how do you get it? So... Let's talk about it from a peak strength perspective. So for peak strength, if you need peak strength, again, if you're agreeing with me that strength is a necessity for speed, you need to train at 90% or greater of your one rep max. So if your one rep max is 400 pounds, let's say it's on the bench press, if you could bench 400, if your name is Billy Blanco or Mike Morano, if you could bench 400 pounds, then your training percentage should be 360 pounds. If you don't believe me, get out a calculator, do the math. And you want to work at three to four sets of one to three reps. And in between those sets, you want to rest for a full five minutes. This may sound insane, but it is quite effective. And we're going to explain the science behind this later. But if you do this, you're going to be able to recover much faster between your workouts. And it's going to enable you, and I'm going to say this again and again, to lift as heavy as possible, as often as possible, as recovered as possible. Now, bodybuilders... They want to gain strength solely for the purpose of building mass. They're going to use lighter weights and higher reps to get this sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. But to do that, they have to continually work their muscles to exhaustion. And because they're doing that, they need time to recover. We don't do that. 
right? We can, we can actually do bench press three times a week at those prescribed percentages, at those reps and sets. Whereas a bodybuilder, they may do bench one time a week, and that's it. They have to rest, they have to recover, let their muscles grow, and then do it again. We don't want that. Now, people will say, look, coach, again, I'm, not, I'm in this for the endurance. The tough man's an endurance feat. I'm going to say this to you. Who do you think can bench press 225 pounds more? Is it the guy who benches 385 once or the guy who benches 275 once? Where does endurance fall into this, right? For me, it's almost always the guy that benches 385 pounds. He's going to bang out more sets of 225 because it's easy. He doesn't have to expend as much energy on each one of those reps. Okay. So people might counter this too. Coach, 90%? You're talking about getting faster? 90%? Aren't you going to be moving slower as you're moving that weight? Yeah. You are moving more slowly as you're moving the weight. But what you see on the outside does not match what's going on inside your body. As Maybe as you're moving the weight slowly, you might not see it on the outside, but inside those mona units are firing. They're keeping, they're firing at full speed to keep this weight from crushing you, right? So the heavy, the weights that you're lifting, the heavy weights that you're lifting, it's not going to slow down your performance. Now, look, we've worked on OCOM, uh, you know, or East eccentrics and, and concentric movements where we were intentionally moving lighter weight more slowly. This is not the case. This is heavy. This is 90% or greater. All right. I also mentioned as part of this that motor units are firing at full speed. Well, what, what does a motor unit have to do with any of this? Well, I'm sure you've all heard the terms fast twitch and slow twitch. And people use it to categorize like, hey, fast twitch muscle fiber. Uh, I'm a sprinter. Slow, sw- slow twitch muscle fiber. I'm a long-distance runner. And for the most part, that's pretty much how athletes gravitate to the sport they play. They gravitate to what their body is mostly comprised of or what they are more likely to do, right? So for, for slow twitch, that's usually affiliated with distance runners. And that type of muscle fiber, uh, you know, you're hitting 15 rep ranges. And it's an aerobic activity because it's fueled by oxygen. If you're a type, there's two types of type 2. Right, you got fast twitch and slow twitch. The slow twitch is type one. There's two types of type two. There's a type two A, which is called the fast twitch oxidative, and that's when you're training in the six to twelve rep range at about eighty percent of your max. And it this this type of fast twitch uses both aerobic and anaerobic, meaning that it's both fueled by oxygen and not fueled by oxygen. But the other one is type two B. This is for the sprinters, and I believe this is the world we want to live in. That's when you're living in the 1 to 5 rep range at 90% of your max or greater. When you're in the fast twitch glycolytic world, that's when you're going to get the maximal production, uh, maximal force production in your muscle fibers. Okay? And I'm going to stop this part of the conversation right there. But I I will go to rep ranges because I know everybody wants to talk about it. So if we're looking at the 1 to 5 rep range, that's when we're really focusing on strength and power. If you're into like the, uh, I don't know, six to nine rep range, we're in strength and hypertrophy. If you're in the nine to 12 rep range, we're into hypertrophy and a, and a little bit of strength. Once you get over 13 reps or 15 reps, that's where you're getting to endurance. So when you're banging out 50 pull-ups, uh, it's become an endurance activity. Sorry, you may not like it, but it is. If you're doing uh, kettlebell swings for... 500 reps. It's an endurance activity. Okay? So think about why you're working out. When you're writing a workout program, what are you trying to do? 
and why are you doing what you're doing? Some people don't know. They just want to do it. Some of our guys, they're highly competitive guys, and they're just looking to kick the crap out of themselves. I get it. But again, if speed is your primary goal, and that's our world right here, if we're looking for strength and power and a little bit of hypertrophy, then we want to live in this one to five rep range at the highest possible percentage we can operate on. And we just said it before, that 90 to 100% of our max. Okay, so great, man. You gave me all this stuff. I don't know anything now, coach. You just completely and totally confused me. Just tell me, what do I do in the gym? Well, here it is. I'm going to give you the exact prescription of what I am doing in the gym right now. I believe uh, Jimmy Yuski is doing something very similar. So is Joe Marechko. We are all experimenting with this underground secrets to faster running. And it is part of our Feed the Cats protocol. So here it is. We start off with uh, jumping rope. right? So we're going to jump rope. And we're going to wake up the central nervous system. Now, it's not the jump rope that you know from old. Where you'd say, okay, guys, uh, do three sets of 100. All right, guys, do two sets of 150. No. Now it's going to be do uh, three sets of jump rope for 10 seconds. How many reps can you possibly get in 10 seconds? Okay, do three sets of jump rope for uh, 50, 50 reps. How fast can you get that in? You do one or the other. So what I'm doing with, with my, my right at the beginning of my workout, it's either for a short amount of time or a short amount of reps. But I'm trying to feed the cats to go as fast as humanly possible for 10 seconds, and that's it. Done. Trying to feed into the whole feed the cats premise. So I do that first, wake up the central nervous system. After that's done... I'll then do one of our two dynamic stretches, either the four-minute warm-up, bodyweight warm-up, or the band warm-up. Bang. Nothing too crazy. We've kind of adjusted our jump rope. Dynamic stretch is the same as usual. Then right after that, we're going to go into core work. Planks, anti-rotational movements, things of that nature. Why is core work so important? Well, again, if speed is our primary goal, when you are running... You're going to have a lot of forces going on between your upper body and your lower body. Your arms are going to be pumping. Your legs are going to be striding. And if you don't have a sick, stable core, it is going to be really hard to stabilize your body as you're running. So you need a strong core. You don't want this unwanted rotation that provides energy waste. Okay. The second part of this is that if you have a weak core, then it's going to cause this anterior pelvic tilt. Joe Trunzo asked me about this, I don't know, like 15 years ago. How the hell do I get rid of anterior pelvic tilt? Well, if you have anterior pelvic tilt, that means you're tilted forward. If that hip happens, if that, not hippens, if that happens, it's going to li limit your hips range of motion. It's going to shorten your stride length, and it's going to increase ground contact time. And if you've been listening at all, if you increase ground contact time, you're getting slower. All right, so we start off jump rope, dynamic stretch, core work. For me, that core work usually involves something like uh, some sort of a plank for 30 seconds and then as I'm resting in between that plank again it's not a 10 minute plank it's a 30 second squeeze everything brace and then in between that I'm actually doing some band neck work to make sure my neck is strong and mobilized I'm not playing football I'm not a wrestler but you never know Giants might call me up I'm still waiting for that day let's make it happen Joe Judge anyway after that's done you're going to go there's going to be two key lifts and that's it that's the end of the workout key lift number one should be some form of a pushing motion. I'll call it bench press. <laughs> Key lift number two is going to be some form of a lower body movement. And we chose deadlift. I'll explain why. So for bench press, what you're going to do is three to five sets of some form of bench press. You can pick who cares. I don't care. You're going to do three to five sets at three to four reps of 90% or more. When you're done with that first set, 
sorry, you got to wait a full five minutes. What do you do to combat your boredom or whatever during those five minutes? Well, after one minute, after one minute of bench press or deadlift, you're allowed to wait. All right, so let's just take it through the bench press first. I do my bench press, I put the weight down, I start the clock. After one minute, I can then do a plyometric drill to work on some sort of pressing movement. Let's say a ballistic push-off or a medicine ball throwdown, something that simulates the same movement that I was doing when I was bench pressing. So you wait one minute, you do that plyometric, you shouldn't do a lot. This is not a conditioning drill. This is not a conditioning drill. This is an explosive, bang, car accident each time. So let's just say, for example, I did a, I'll, I'll take this to very specifically what I'm doing right now. If I'm doing one-arm dumbbell bench press, I'm doing three reps on my right arm at 125 pounds. I put the weight down, I start the clock, and then I'm going to do three repetitions of ballistic push-offs. Bang, bang, bang. After one minute, boom. Now the clock is running. Well, what do I do then? So what I've decided to do for the next four minutes is prehab movement. I'll do some sort of prehab movement from my upper body. I don't know, something to help my shoulders from not getting injured, something to that extent, but it's going to be a prehab movement for my upper body. Then I'll take a little bit of a rest, and I'm going to do a prehab movement for my glutes. I do the glutes because not only will that help me on my bench press, because I like to activate my glutes while I'm bench pressing, but also it's getting me prepared for the deadlift. And I will do that. I'll do three sets of bench, cycle through that whole sequence three times, and then move on to the next thing. The next thing is going to be deadlift. Okay. So I've chosen to do a trap bar deadlift as my deadlift of choice. Why? Well, the reason is I only get two things to do. One's got to be an upper body movement. The other one's got to be a lower body movement. And a trap bar deadlift to me, I couldn't decide between a deadlift and a squat. So I figured let me go with the deadlift version. Why the trap bar deadlift version? Because not only is that somewhere, it's kind of a mixture of a squat and a deadlift, but it also helps you work on grip strength because I'm trying to maximize the stuff that I'm doing. I don't want to be in the gym all that long. I don't want to sit there after the workout's over working on my grip strength or working on my posterior chain. So that's why I chose the trap bar deadlift. And again, it's three to five sets at three to four reps at 90% of your max. Again, you finish your set of trap bar deadlift, you go to your stopwatch, and then you would do some form of plyometrics. It could be a jump. It can be a kettle spell swing. But again, it's only three reps. This is not a conditioning movement. It is just something that we're doing after we do our key movement in that area. When that's done, then I prefer to do prehab movements again, keep my body mobilized, stop myself from getting injured, increase my range of motion. So I'll do something for the hips. And then after I do something for the hips, I'll pick, make a selection of doing some sort of single leg exercise, uh, ankle mobility, adductor work, groin work, whatever it is. And that's the workout. When that's done, it's decompression time. Do some static stretching, do some breathing drills, and I'm out. This entire workout should take you somewhere between 45 minutes and 50 minutes. You should be in and out. That includes the stretch, and it includes the cool down, or sorry, the decompression period. So I'll take you through it again. It's jump rope, dynamic stretch, core work, bench press, deadlift, decompression, go home, done. Now, to many people, this is blasphemy. I need two hours in the gym. Take it. You do whatever you want. I'm going to take my 45 minutes and be able to move on with my life. If I'm an athlete, this is sick because now I spend 45 minutes at the gym, and then I can go to the football field and work on my craft, and I'm not going to be sore. I'm not going to be sore because I didn't get the burn. So let's do a little bit of a Q&A on this workout. The first one is, well, what do you do? Uh, how often are you doing this? Right now, I'm doing it three times a week. So I'm lifting three times a week. I'm running twice a week, 
and then once a week we are doing our tough man competition and that once a week tough man is really the only endurance that I'm doing I am really soon thinking about changing it to lifting twice a week running three times a week and doing the tough man once a week I am, I may be experimenting with that soon I don't know uh, but because running is is a very violent activity and I feel like in, in some instances you may be getting more out of sprinting than you are actually getting out of lifting just think about when you are running full speed how fast you have to react how much impact is going into the ground how how much force you're putting into the ground and on your body and it actually seems like you're getting more out of that than just weightlifting alone so I'm thinking about it I might experiment with it I don't know but for right now it's lifting three times a week sprinting two times a week tough man one time a week and that's my six days how do I break it up normally I usually lift on Sundays Tuesdays and Thursdays sprint on Mondays and Fridays and the sprint on a Friday is more of a football agility type workout and the sprint on Monday is more of a linear running type workout and the off day is Wednesday and Saturday would be the time to do our tough man competition that's just the way it works out okay back to uh, back to some more Q&A so people would say well can you talk about why you're doing these plyometrics after each set of bench and deadlift yes absolutely right because think about it I know there's been the debate coach you know, you're lifting all this heavy weight, you're moving slower, and you're going to move slower. We debunk that, right? But people say, well, why aren't you lifting lightweight as fast as you possibly can? Because that's something that Westside Barbell does, right? They have the dynamic effort method. I love the dynamic effort method, but it doesn't fit into what we're doing here. There's no time and no place for it. So for us, to me, that is, and I guess to Barry Ross, that's kind of the way to add this in, right? It's Remember, the more force on contact that you have with, say, with the ground gives you less time to deliver that force. So by adding in these plyometrics, I'm working on my ability to generate that maximum force in the shortest amount of time, that delivery rate that we talked about before. So this plyometrics added into your program is a great way of doing that. And it's really good to do that after you've lifted it, lifted this, this heavy weight, right? Because it's tricking the body into creating a greater level of energy to compensate for an expected increase in demand. Right? Your body's thinking that it's supposed to be benching 400 pounds, and now you're doing a push-off, and you're, you're flying through the roof, right? So that's why we're doing plyometrics, and that's why we're doing them when we're doing them. We're doing them one minute after each set. Whew. Sorry. Okay. People had asked, hey, look, why did you choose uh, the bench press and the deadlift? Well, for me, the bench press was a great way to, to prime my body for the deadlift, I think the deadlift is a key movement, but it's also an upper body movement. It's not something that would get me too tired to perform the deadlift. So I, I chose the bench press, and who doesn't want to have a sick bench press? And with respect to the deadlift, I think I really had the choice of a couple of different things. Uh, Olympic, snatch, back squat, deadlift, lunges. For me, the thing that I could get the most economical use of my time and the biggest weight with would be the deadlift. I think I could get a little more weight with the squat, but I don't have a squat rack in my house. And if I squatted, I wouldn't be able to use a work work on my grip. So for me, the deadlift was that was the reason why I picked it. It was an all-inclusive exercise. And then the way to compromise for that was because I really do enjoy squatting. Well, I'm going to do the trap bar deadlift because that now makes it a little bit more closer to the squat than a than a traditional deadlift would be. So that's why I chose the deadlift. Also, people say, well, again. Why those two things? Well, you, when you're doing this, you really want to work with, when you work with this 90% of your max, you want to use multi-joint slash compound 
exercises. Why? Well, it improves two things. One, rhythmic reflexes, and two, protection of your ligaments. So what? Rhythmic reflexes. What is that? So when you're performing any compound movement, any compound movement, bench press, squat, deadlift, big muscle groups, lots of things going on. We're not isolating just our our, uh, bicep or our tricep. I'm not doing uh, curls or I don't even know what they're called. Cable tricep kickbacks. I don't do any of this stuff. I don't know what the hell it's called. But if you're doing a compound movement, both the inhibiting and stimulating forces of the different muscles counterback each other, counteract, mm, counterbalance each other. All right. So that's why we want to have this multi-joint compound exercise. Also, it's protecting the lim- ligaments. So when these muscles that surround the joints are worked as a unit, they actually stabilize and protect your joints and ligaments. And if you remember, I've talked about this a long time ago, but your muscles are going to grow at a much faster rate than those joints and ligaments. So you're only going to move as as healthy as your joints and ligaments are. So you have to keep them healthy. Another question I've had is, what do you mean by total tonnage? Well, think about this. I said this before. I'm doing this workout three times a week. I'm literally doing this workout three times a week. So I'm benching three times a week. I'm deadlifting three times a week. So when we talk about total tonnage, maybe in one workout, you might be lifting more than me in terms of total tonnage with your bench press. But over the course of the week, I'm going to lift more than you because I can recover fast. Coach, I still don't know what you're talking about. What is total tonnage? So let's just say that your max is uh, 360 pounds, right? Your max is 360, and you're going to do four sets of 10 at 65%, All right? So I'm going to go four sets of 10 at 65%. If you've got your calculator out, that's 225. So you're basically doing 225, four sets of 10. If you're cal- counting your quote-unquote total tonnage for the day, it's 900 pounds. Yeah, we're talking pounds. I don't think we want to convert this to tons. All right. So you do 900 pounds that day, and now you're done for the week because you've left the gym sore and you need time to recover. In our workouts, I'm going to do three sets of four at 90% of my max, which is 315 pounds. So you're doing 225, four sets of 10. I'm doing three, 315, three sets of four, except I'm doing that three times a week, where you're only doing yours once a week. Now, I've lifted 11,340 pounds, which is much higher than your 9,000 pounds. So I have a better total total tonnage, and I don't feel sore, and I've recovered faster, and I get to lift as heavy as possible, as often as possible, as fresh as possible. So that's what I mean by total tonnage. Now, we talked about what we are doing, just quickly mentioning things that we're not doing. So I'm not squatting anymore. Uh, I'm not doing Olympic lifts. I'm not doing any form of uh, curls or dips or anything like that or any high rep movement, things that I used to love. I used to love doing pull-ups. I used to love doing dips. I used to love doing push-ups. I'm not doing those things. I'm not saying at all. I'm just not doing them during those workouts. So when do I do them? Well, I have after I do three weeks of that prescribed workout to keep my sanity and to keep my love of some of the things that I used to do, I am doing it as part of my deload week. So I will put in Olympic lifts, maybe some uh, one-arm, one-arm hang snatch. I'll do it at very light weight to work on explosion. I'll do some squat work. I'll do some overhead lunges. I'll, I'll do some curls. We'll do pull-ups at the field. So I'll do it, but I'm just not going to make it a part of every single workout, and I'll try and keep it as part of what's going on during the deload week. And then uh, for the tough man, 
All right, coach, we're doing a tough man, but isn't that high volume? It is. It's kind of the endurance stuff. It's kind of our uh, time to be tough. But we are, A, we are working to integrate Feed the Cats methodology into this workout, meaning we are trying to go as fast as we can. We're not trying to make it an endurance workout. We're trying to go at either much heavier weight than we do on test day for a shorter distance or much lighter weight to try and work on our rate of delivery. So we're trying to work in these Feed the Cat sessions on our mass-specific force and or our, our delivery rate. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And again, inadvertently, sorry, inevitably, every guy will say to me, you're soft, this workout should be harder, I hate Feed the Cats, this is stupid. But that is why we're doing it. We're trying to put either by using heavier weight for a shorter distance, that's kind of replicating that 90% max at 1 to 3 reps. And that increased delivery rate of going lighter weight for the same distance is working on what that, that delivery rate, same way as our plyometrics would be. The other part of this is that with tough man training, it is predominantly concentric based. So for people that don't know, I'll keep it simple. Concentric is when you are overcoming a weight. So if you're bench pressing, it's when the weight is going up. And then eccentric is when the weight is coming down. Most of your muscle mass is being built on the eccentric portion of that lift. That's why if guys want to get bigger, they will do eccentric training. I just wrote a program for my nephew, Damunda, who wants to be a, look like a bodybuilder, and it was predominantly built on eccentric training, increasing the time under tension. Well, tough man stuff is mostly concentric training. If you're pushing a sled, there is no overcoming of, I'm sorry, acceptance of the weight. You're just pushing the sled. So that really shouldn't increase our mass too much. Ah, said a lot here. Throat's getting dry. Anyway. People then ask, well, coach, how long are you doing that program for, the thing you just said? Well, what I'm doing is I'm still leveraging the undulating periodization from Secrets of Strength or the Holy Grail of Strength. If you remember, we were doing the similar type of thing in the Holy Grail of Strength, except it was uh, sets of five instead of sets of three. And I was operating at about 75 to 80% of my max instead of 90% of my max. And I was doing a whole bunch of other stuff, which was ridiculous and making the workouts very long. And I think it was... uh, stupid on my part. So this is actually helping me do less and focus on less. But what I was doing in terms of the undulating periodization, what that means was I would add five pounds to every lift. So say Monday, uh, let's make this simple. Monday, I'm benching 225. Let me actually do my lifting days. Sunday, I'm benching 225. Tuesday, I'm benching 230. Thursday, I'm benching 235. That's week one. Week two, when I start bench again, I don't start at 225. I add five pounds to that. I start at 230. I go 230, 235, 240. Then the next week, on next the following Sunday, I start 235, then go to 240 on Tuesday, then 245 on Thursday. So that's what I would do. And that would take me through that three-week cycle, and then I'd go to my deload week. The following program, I would then add, again, five pounds to each of those weeks. So the first week and the first phase, I started at 225. Now I'm going to start at 230. And every week, I'm just going to continue to do that so that and it's going to keep going. I might do that for three or four phases. That might take me three or four months. I'm going to do it until my form breaks down, or if I get completely and totally bored, or if I feel like I have massive overuse. So for example, I had done flat dumbbell bench press for about three months, and now I've switched it up to dumbbell incline. One arm, hopefully I get it for the next three months. So this, this is how I'm going to keep recycling workouts, uh, move stuff in. And again, I'm hoping that my deload weeks are stopping me from being completely and totally bored by doing stuff that I wanted to do. 
Another question I got was, could you use this during the season? Yes, you can. So this is a great thing about this. If you are a sports coach, you can have your athletes do this during the season because A, it's short. They're not going to be in the gym for six hours. And B, they're not going to be sore and they're going to be fresh. They're not going to be sore. They're not going to be fresh. I know it's counterintuitive, right? You don't want your guys squatting heavy uh, during the season. The legs are going to be dead. But if you're doing a three to three, let's say three sets at three reps at 90% of your max, you're not going to get that burn. Okay, let's talk. Let's let's wrap this thing up with the uh, the the geeky science stuff. Actually, before we wrap this thing up, I have to get into this part about uh, the kettlebell swings because it is a, a constant conversation. And it is a conversation in our group, and I believe there is a little bit of correlation uh, and causation argument. So we've had our last two tough man winners and challenge, uh, uh, two out of three challenge champs, have been doing these this kettlebell workouts where they are swinging a kettlebell and doing kettlebell stuff for, say, 500 reps. And people will say, well, I, because they did that and they won the tough man, this is why they won the tough man. I sh- it should also be noted that these guys are pretty damn good and winning stuff uh, before they started doing that. But I'm not saying that this, these are bad workouts. They're great workouts. We, we do kettlebell swings as part of our workout, but they just do it in a different way. They're doing it for high volume. And this stuff will absolutely, it's going to build rotational strength, it's going to build torso strength, it's going to build strength endurance, but if we're working for speed, I don't think it's going to work on that speed. It's not going to do the same thing as lifting 90% for three reps uh, of your one rep max. And more often than not, guys who do this feel like crap when they're done. If you remember the phrase, lift as heavy as possible, as often as possible, as fresh as possible. So that would be a key reason why I wouldn't think to have to do these high-volume kettlebell swings. So guys are like, look, man, I need it for that edge. If you need it for that edge, that's fine. I don't because when I'm smacking around 90% of my deadlift max, I feel like I have a mental edge. When I'm going through 90% of my bench press max, I feel like I have that mental edge. So I, I wanted to just – I don't know if it's going to put it to bed, but I just I, it makes me a little nervous when guys think that correlation uh, – well, they don't see that correlation does not equal causation. Those guys work hard. They do everything hard, and I wouldn't attribute uh, their winning the tough man solely to that one activity. I'm not going to say it it hurt them, but I'm not going to say it's the absolute reason why it made them better uh, at every single thing they were doing. All right, so now we're going to get into the the most sciencey part of this entire podcast, and it really relates back to what is the hardest part of this lifting program. And I'm going to be honest, it is the waiting the full five minutes between your sets. At first, I didn't know what to do it myself especially because I'm working out in my gym alone. Like, there's no one I can talk to. I'm not spotting anybody. It's just me. So uh, five minutes is a long time to be alone with your thoughts in between a, a set of bench press. So yes, I was able to make that a little bit easier on my mind by adding in the plyometrics and the prehab stuff. But again, it's a long time. But let's talk about the why. Well, it all comes down to ATP. So all of your skeletal muscle energy is fueled by ATP. And type 2B muscle fiber, which we are going to be focusing on with our the way we're lifting with our 90% at three reps, right? That's type 2B fiber. It does not require oxygen to produce ATP. It doesn't require oxygen. In place of oxygen, the two main sources of anaerobic fuel supply, so anaerobic means without oxygen, the two main sources of anaerobic fuel supply are the phosphagen system and glycolysis. I'll say that again. The phosphagen system and glycolysis. If your eyes are rolling, just Sit back and relax for a second, all right? Because we have to talk about this. Glycolysis, it does a great job of producing and supplying ATP 
for 2A and 2B muscles. But, but, there's a big but, it produces lactic acid, which most of you guys know as the burn. I gotta feel the burn! You know why it's called the burn? It's called the burn because its presence burns the free nerve endings located in your muscle fibers. There's physical pain. There's no long-term physical pain, but there is pain. And the accumulation of lactic acid, or aka the burn, it can actually interfere with your muscle contraction, which is why it inhibits performance in athletes. So athletes don't want the burn. Bodybuilders need the burn. Athletes don't want the burn. That's why you want to leave the gym feeling great. You don't need that burn. They think they need the burn, but you don't need the burn. Now let's get back to this phosphagen system, right? We talked about glycolysis. It's great, but it gives you lactic acid. Let's talk about the phosphagen system. So think about the phosphagen system like uh, this storage battery, right? It's got this high-energy phosphate pool containing a small amount of ATP and other compounds in it. It's like a battery storage system, all right? And this thing's going to kick in immediately when your muscle fibers have a sudden demand for lots of energy. And it's going to provide the needed fuel from its ATP reserve. So you got this phosphagen system, you have this high demand, boom! Here comes your ATP reserve. But it's a lot of hard work. It's not easy. Within two or three seconds of maximum energy output, which is what you're absolutely going to have if you are, I don't know, sprinting or lifting uh, insane amounts of weight, 90% or greater, all of that original ATP will have lost a phosphate molecule. All right? Which makes it useful, sorry, useless as an energy provider. Now, bear with me. We said before, this is a, this phosphagen system is like a, a phosphate pool. Now, this phosphate pool has another compound. Wait for it. It's called phosphocreatine. That's right. You guys probably know the, the second part of this, creatine. This thing is a phosphocreatine. And that phosphocreatine, that PC, is nice enough to give up its phosphate molecule in order to regenerate the original ATP that was used. Right? So ATP is used, it becomes ADP, and then here comes the creatine that you're taking, which actually became phosphocreatine, and that is going to convert, uh, give you more, give, convert its P to make it ATP. All right? Whew! So, you need five minutes to replenish this phosphate pool. That's why you have to, to wait five minutes. That's the important part, right? If you don't wait the five minutes, that energy creation is going to be turned over to glycolysis, and then the burn's going to kick in, and you're going to get lactic acid, and you're going to get sore, and then you're not going to be able to train as heavy as possible, as often as possible, as recovered as possible. So that's why you have to wait the full five minutes. You have to wait for this phosphagen system to replenish itself, and usually it'll do that in about five minutes. If you don't do anything else, you're allowed to do your plyometrics, but you can't do any other workouts during that time. You gotta wait. All right, people. I hope that you guys have taken away. This is a long podcast, especially when you're talking to yourself. But I hope you guys now understand what we're talking about. Now, the last thing I'll leave you with is this whole feed the cats mantra, because guys aren't understanding what we're talking about when it when we're talking about feed the cats. So I'm taking a massive step back here, and then I'll link it to the underground secrets to faster running. With respect to feed the cats, it's a phrase made by, again, the great and powerful Tony Holler. And what he's talking about with feed the cats, he's saying that what you want to do is if you have a program, 
You probably have a bunch of cats walking around your school. When you think about a cat, somebody who's fast, limber, excited, explosive. But they don't want to go to these long, horrible practices. So you create an environment where you're feeding cats, and they want, they want to come. You know, if you go walk into a house, you have to figure out a way to get that cat to come to you. Dog is pat your leg, the dog walks over. A cat, you have to earn that cat's respect. You have to earn that way into that cat. You have to create an environment where the cat feels comfortable before they brush up on your leg. Right? So feed the cats. What it means, in essence, is that. Now, in our world, we're, we're kind of uh, distorting the view of it. We're, we're talking about feed the cats. We're talking about Tony Holler's speed program, right? Speed program means don't run guys into the ground. Give them the minimal effective dose to be as fast as they possibly can. Do less to achieve more. Do less to achieve more. Sick stuff. I love it. But we're constantly battling within our group of softness and guys want to puke and they want to be tough. And then we have certain guys saying feed the cats and they're saying it wrong. And certain guys are saying to feed the cats and other guys don't know what it is. Well, that's what feed the cats is. Now, how does it relate to underground secrets to faster running? Well, this is the weight training program that you would do to help you have the right speed training program. And it does fit into the feed the cats mantra because you're not in the gym for six hours. This is the strength training program that is allowing you to run fast. It's allowing you to sprint as often as possible, as fast as possible, as refreshed as possible. It's allowing you to lift as often as possible, as heavy as possible, as refreshed as possible. That's where Feed the Cats comes into this. I'm hoping it makes sense. I'm hoping guys even got to this point in the podcast. But essentially, it is not soft to do less. You do not need to always constantly do more to create mental toughness. Yeah, we're going to do some sick things in the tough man, but that should be once a week. We're going to do... But, man, you're going to... Lift 90% of your max. That should be mental toughness right there, right? 90% of your max, three sets of three, that's sick. That should build mental toughness on its own. Or a full sprint, bang! That should build up mental toughness. But you can't repeatedly work at that optimal level all the time. You need to recover, right? You need to recover so you can do it again. You need to recover so you can do it again, bang! Over and over again. And if, if you can recover the right way, you'll actually have more tonnage and more frequency in your training than someone who goes really hard one day and then they can't walk for the next two weeks because they just uh, they overdid it or they have too much of the burn. All right, people, that's it. Please ask me for more questions on this stuff. Please ask me questions on this stuff, whatever you got. Uh, I'd love to, to hear what you have to say, and maybe we can start having some more guys feeding cats and working out the right way. All right, bye. This episode is brought to you by Element. That's L-M-N-T. What's Element? Element is the product that came into my life at exactly the right moment. I've been training hard. I've been sweating like a maniac. But unfortunately, after my sessions, I could never kick that feeling of dehydration. It didn't matter how much water I drank. In fact, the more water I drank, the worse it got. My body was telling me, you need more. You need electrolytes. But I refused to go and buy some sugary sports drink and put that garbage into my body. Enter Element. What's Element? It's a tasty electrolyte drink mix. That's right. I said tasty. They have seven different flavors. My personal favorite is mango chili. But most importantly, it's got no sugar. It's got no gluten. It's got no garbage. It's got no guilt. Take it. You'll feel better. You won't feel like a bum after you drink it. You won't feel any guilt after taking it. To get your element today, go to drinklmnt.com backslash George Mahoney. Again, that's drinklmnt.com backslash George Mahoney. Get yours today.